Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Resolute Square. Welcome to The Zero Line, produced by Resolute Square. I'm Sergeant Sarah Ashton Cirillo of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, and every week we'll be bringing you inside Ukraine's war for liberty and liberation against the Russian enemy, while explaining how a victory by us on the battlefield isn't just vital for the Ukrainian people, but for the world as a whole. We will push back against the lies regarding this war for freedom and take you straight to the front lines of the fight for democracy. This is Sarah Ashton Cirillo. You are joining us at The Zero Line with Sarah Ashton Cirillo. This is the inaugural episode, and our first guest is an esteemed member of the Ukrainian Diplomatic Corps and somebody whose voice has been heard across the globe and around the world for quite a number of years. I'd like to welcome the current Ambassador for Strategic Communications from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine, Oleksandr Sherba. And Mr. Ambassador, welcome to the inaugural episode and thank you for being our guest today. Thank you for inviting me, sir. You and I have been connected uh, for quite some time, probably right after the beginning of the full-scale invasion. And recently we've had the chance to meet in person and have some interesting discussions and communications about the world at large, but also about the United States, a country we both know very well. Can you tell the audience a bit about your experience in the U.S. at the beginning of the 2000s? At the beginning of 2000s, well, it was in 2004 when I was stationed in Washington, D.C. By that time, I was already seriously in love with America. It took some persuasion on my part to, to force my wife to move to America and not to Germany, which was more familiar to us at that time. Uh, but uh, when we were leaving the United States in 2008, four and a half years later, uh, my wife cried uh, because because life without America was almost unimaginable by, by then. So after your service in the United States in the uh, at the embassy in Washington, another long posting you had, and for those who are listening to this and are not familiar, ambassadors have uh, different tenures uh, as well as the diplomatic corps. You recently came off of uh, a six and a half, almost seven year stint in Austria, representing Ukraine uh, there in Central Europe. And currently you've been appointed recently to a very unique position, Ambassador for Strategic Communications. I'd like to ask you about your current posting, which happens to take place within Ukraine. I know it sounds rather intriguing, and it's doubly intriguing for me because uh, that's the uh, post that current uh, foreign minister held before becoming ambassador to Strasbourg. So it adds uh, pressure on me uh, to live up to his expectations uh, because I am a kind of like his successor in this position. 
Strategic communications is a rather big, big term, uh, and it's about the dialogue that Ukraine is trying to conduct uh, with the outside world, explaining, first of all, Ukraine to the world, but in some, at some points, explaining the world to Ukraine. So, sorry about being this vague, but uh, this, is, this is the nature of this uh, post. Regarding communications between Ukraine and the world, one thing that has come out of uh, fighting during this full-scale invasion has been a very aggressive, I would say, diplomatic approach to making certain Ukraine's voice is not lost. It starts with President Zelensky, it goes through our diplomatic corps, and also my fellow soldiers, myself online, we are given definitely some space to be able to make some uh, commentary when necessary about the enemy. Has this always been the tradition of Ukrainian politics, Ukrainian diplomacy, or is this something new since the full-scale invasion, sir? For me, it wasn't uh, that new because as ambassador in Austria, I was rather outspoken, and especially by Austrian measures, because uh, they are very, very cautious there. And it is for a reason that uh, after serving six and a half years there, I wrote a book titled uh, Undiplomatic Thoughts. So it's at points... I, I thought the country under attack and Ukraine was uh, under attack since 2014. The ambassador of that country uh, is allowed some, um, you know, uh, emotion and some even undiplomatic tones from time to time. Plus, you should understand Ukrainian diplomacy uh, consists mostly of uh, people who enter diplomatic service for uh, in, in the middle uh, of the 90s or in late, in late 90s and who now have become ambassadors, so they have developed a certain style um, that is basically the new school of Ukrainian diplomacy. Yeah, it's kind of undiplomatic, but, uh, well, I think duly so. It's been effective thus far, maybe not as rapidly achieving some goals as we would wish here in Ukraine, but nonetheless, our partner nations understand uh President Zelensky's vision, understand the vision of the MFA and the armed forces of Ukraine, as well as our enemies. Our enemies understand it too. And I think this has caught Russia, Iran, and, and, and some of the other countries that have been uh, attempting to enslave the Ukrainian people uh, off guard, that we've come with such strength and focus to make certain that uh, Ukraine is liberated back to the 1991 borders and see President Zelensky's 10-point peace plan implemented. Regarding your book, Undiplomatic Thoughts, what made you decide to sit down and write a book while you were still in, in a sense, active service? You were out of your position in Austria, but you were still in active service in MFA. Uh, Were you nervous about that at all? And, And how was it received by others within the MFA? Quite frankly, uh, my whole work as diplomat, my whole career as diplomat, uh, I enjoyed a little bit more freedom than uh, uh, most of my colleagues because I was a speechwriter. And speechwriters are usually, you know, like kind of like free thinkers who basically, um, yeah, well, are allowed a little bit more. I wouldn't say that most of the people were uh, surprised by me writing the book titled with this kind of title. 
what was the reason for me to write. And I had more free time than usual during the pandemic, quite frankly. So that was the time for me to put some of my thoughts on paper and just began with one chapter, two, three. So, and it turned out to be a book. I don't know whether it's a good one or a bad one. Some people like it. I think it has some very strong reviews and I suggest to everyone jump on Amazon or go to any of your other online booksellers and pick up uh, Mr. Ambassador's uh, book, Undiplomatic Thoughts, about his service in the MFA on behalf of Ukraine. Speaking of undiplomatic thoughts, right before we went on air, today uh, and beginning last uh, night, a lot of people started to discuss uh, President Obama again in relation to uh, Russia's aggression and illegal, uh, temporary, but illegal occupation of uh, Ukraine in Crimea and the Donbass, etc. And you put out a tweet basically suggesting that uh, President Obama uh, maybe was giving some cover to the invaders, to the Russian enemy. And while you were in Washington, obviously, President Obama came in right after you had left. But in witnessing it in real time and looking back on it today, what could have been done differently by the Obama administration to have stopped uh, what we now know of as the full-scale invasion? Well, first of all, I should say that I like President Obama. Uh, he was such a symbolic, powerful figure uh, of unity and breakthrough into the future when he got elected. I remember I, I, I experienced uh, that uh, presidential campaign because I was in, in the United States at that point. Everybody in the West, including President Obama, made uh, mistakes, big mistakes concerning a misjudgment of Russia. It shouldn't be a big thing just to acknowledge because it's so obvious. And I was rather surprised that, for instance, uh, President Clinton uh, was uh, actually, uh, he had the courage to uh, admit that he was uh, probably wrong with forcing Ukraine to sign the Budapest Memorandum in its form that basically was useless uh, uh, for Ukraine in exchange for nuclear weapons that we gave up in 1994. But for instance, President Obama wasn't ready to uh, acknowledge his mistakes from 2014. I will never forget, quite frankly, it's a personal episode for me. I was the one who wrote President Poroshenko's speech in 2014 when he was addressing the two chambers of uh, American Congress. I wrote down what I thought my president should tell America. And one of the things was he asked for little weapons. The uh, phrase was, uh, uh, dear America, thank you for the help that you are providing, but uh, it's a war and the war cannot be won with blankets and uh, night vision goggles. And I didn't know that there was an agreement between uh, Ukrainian embassy and presidential administration uh, and presidential office in Washington that this topic wouldn't be touched upon. And uh, there was some bitterness after that. And I just couldn't understand that bitterness from 2014. It was so obvious that Ukraine needed these lethal weapons in this war. Why couldn't they be provided uh, faster under President Obama, for instance. And that's just the beginning of many, many questions. I think we're facing something similar now uh, for uh, Ukrainian civilians, for government employees, for members of the armed forces. We ask that question now to our allies. 
how come you're not getting us these weapons that we need faster? How come you're not getting them to us in a way that will allow us to save lives? Because ultimately, this war is about uh, President Zelensky's 10-point peace plan and ultimately saving lives and finding justice and getting full liberation of Ukraine back to the 1991 borders. And the wheels of government grind differently or roll on differently when you're not living in a country at war. You've now represented a government in a country at war for almost 10 years. Uh, Many people were surprised, casual observers, that all of a sudden Russia invaded, uh, big deal, February 24th, full-scale invasion. But for the previous uh, near decade, uh, the brave uh, men and women of Ukraine have been fighting to liberate the Donbass and Crimea. Ultimately, when do you foresee the a victory taking place under the current parameters of, of the weapons? You know, there, there's a lot of uh, interesting fighting going on in different directions. We'll put it that way. Uh, do you foresee a victory within the next year, sir? The feeling in Ukraine that uh, is that by the end of the year and maybe by the end of the summer, there will be some major successes of this so-called counteroffensive, we, which we prefer to name uh, the summer campaign because it's uh, militarily it's more correct. So, And then, uh, well, it will be just uh, if there is an impressive breakthrough of Ukrainian army on the front line with a big amount, with big number of POWs on the Russian side, with obviously uh, a breaking of the front line, of the defense line of Russian troops, then uh, there would be uh, a different mood in Russia. I always say that Russia, uh, Putin's system is based on one very fragile thing. And the thing is the trust between the people in those so-called deep Russia outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg. And personally, Vladimir Putin, not the president of Russia, not the, uh, I don't know, whoever his successor is, personally, this guy, because of this trust, this trust was built up for two uh, decades. And because this trust is there, many people follow Putin, even if they disagree, even even if they understand what a colossal mistake they, uh, they made. If this trust crumbles, then it changes everything. And I do hope that uh, for our sake, for the world's sake, and for Russia's sake, these eyes of Russian uh, deep people open uh, sooner than later. Speaking of Putin and his relationship with the people of Russia, as you mentioned, sir, direct relationship with the people of Russia, a lot of Putin's messaging and a lot of the messaging that he directs or is directed on his behalf from the Kremlin is based off of promises and threats and suggestions and extortion and blackmail, but not necessarily the actions. Recently, we see him again discussing Um, trying to extort the world and the Ukrainian people more specifically using nuclear uh, blackmail threats and nuclear extortion threats. In your experience in dealing with your Russian counterparts, and obviously no one knows 
Russia better than the Ukrainian people, uh, whether it's somebody in, in, in a village in Kharkiv or somebody in Uman or even in the West, in, in Transcarpathians, the West of Ukraine, you as Ukrainians understand the Russians better than anyone. With that being said, in your professional encounters with your Russian counterparts, how difficult has it been over the years? Because it's been two to three decades of disinformation, misinformation, attempts at uh, uh, different persuasive tactics to negotiate with them in good faith, to work with them in good faith. Has there ever been a time when there was this glimmer of hope or has it, in, in, again, in your professional experience, always been clouded by the knowledge that Russia is up to something? You know, I am not the best judge of Russia, quite frankly, and Russia's domestic scene, because uh, the last time I was actually in Russia, it was uh, 1993. It was before I even became a diplomat. So my whole career was mostly dedicated to the West, to the EU and to the United States. The, the glimmer of hope, as you said, uh, was for me at uh, the time after this uh, coup d'etat in uh, 1991 when Moscow and the Red Square was filled with thousands and thousands of people who went there to stop, took to the streets to stop Russian dictatorship. That was what was basically unfolding before our eyes. That was Russia too, you know? And somehow, ever since, this positive, hopeful, future-oriented Russia has been deteriorating, deteriorating, deteriorating. And right now it's basically a fascist, fascist state with, lived, uh, with, with beloved uh, Fuhrer, uh, with uh, mm, yeah, uh, all kinds of annexations, so on and so forth. I always have been considered as someone soft on Russian, quite frankly. I, I, I would be, because, because I didn't have this experience uh, with, with them directly, my Russia was, like for many people in Europe and maybe in the United States, uh, it was mostly Tchaikovsky, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky. You know, I grew up with this culture. I love this culture. Russian is one of the two mother tongues that I speak. Um, because we in Ukraine, we are basically all bilingual. I still want to believe that there is something, and definitely there is something positive at the deep down in the soul of that nation. But uh, this, this folk of uh, propaganda has uh, to somehow uh, start, uh, you know, how, what's the right word, going apart. Yes, um, I'd like to say, sir, Mr. Ambassador, that uh, as a member of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, one thing that we wish to do is inflict a transformative defeat upon the Russian invaders, upon the enemy. So whatever might be hidden in there, can come out, right? Because we have to break it apart. We have to make certain that uh, victory is is achieved in a manner that uh, allows for whatever could be shining through to eventually be able to see its way into the light. But, uh, you know, my hope is, and again, maybe I'm wrong. I was wrong about uh, thinking about that this war wouldn't happen, for instance. My feeling is that this cloud of darkness that descended upon upon Russia. It's very, very personality bound. And once this person is not there, there is a chance for uh, a change. Uh, until then, I don't know. Speaking about the dictator known as Putin, 
the we see propaganda coming out of Telegram, coming out of the different social networks regarding Pogrosian, Shoigu, uh, Putin is normally left out of it, only as re- referred to in many cases. What's really going on there? Is this play acting or is there really something to the arguments and, and back and forth between the Ministry of Defense and, and Pogrosian? Something brewing, you know, uh, um... Prigozhin was uh, the guy who was at the center of war. He saw many of his uh, comrades uh, die, thousands of them actually in Bakhmut. He uh, himself uh, admitted uh, to 10,000 people, uh, Russian uh, military dying in Bakhmut only. So maybe once you you have faced uh, this kind of uh, bloodshed, something changes. I don't know. Uh, although by this logic, of course, uh, all these uh, military correspondents uh, should have been less uh, indoctrinated uh, than they, they, or they, they sound, but they uh, sound really like propagandists. I think, I think again, it's just it's something about personality of the Gozhan here, uh, something Either his uh, vanity wasn't satisfied, or it, or maybe uh, he really is trying to reach out for truth. I don't know. During this war, Russia has had to utilize uh, private military contractors. Obviously, we were just discussing Pogrosian and, and Wagner, and there are uh, other PMCs in the in the area of operations as well on on the Russian side. They are using convicts. They are showing a weakness to the world. Furthermore, they're having to go to some of their more nefarious allies, such as Iran, such as North Korea, we believe. Uh, where is Russia's, after our victory, and, and victory is going to be certain, after return to the 1991 borders, where is Russia's standing in the world? So our standing, uh, for those of us supporting Ukraine and for the Ukrainian people, is going to be uh, truly at this uh, center of Europe, this this beacon of of liberty, light, and 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 hope. Russia is not going to be in the same category as Ukraine. Because of this, will they be a more dangerous neighbor, or do you think that this victory by Ukraine will bring some peace to the region? Well, the expectation in Ukraine is that Russia would start falling apart, uh, or at least uh, there would be a major uh, domestic political crisis, like it always happened in Russian history uh, after a major, uh, you know, military defeat, uh, like uh, after uh, Russia's defeat in uh, the war with uh, time in Japan in uh, 1905. Basically, this whole collapse of uh, the Tsarist system started and there was a major crisis after uh, Russia basically losing Crimea war in the second half of uh, 19th century. So that's the expectation. I have a friend uh, who uh, today uh, wrote on Facebook that he can, he's ready to bet everything uh, that by uh, 2026 Russia one won't exist in its current borders, uh, not only because it would, would lose Crimea, but basically that it would start falling apart. And so this guy is a professional historian, so I, I like reading something like this. 
as speaking of falling apart, the opposite of that is strengthening, is unifying. Ukraine is extremely unified right now in this struggle for liberation and struggle against the invader. You worked as a diplomat. You were the speechwriter for the previous president. You're now serving under President Zelensky. The transformation of democracy for Ukraine uh, from orange to Maidan to now. Moving forward, civil society has taken tremendous steps. Do you see these gains, what would be called gains for this liberal style of, of this Western democracy, this liberal democracy, taking hold now for the foreseeable future, for, for many generations into the future? The main thing one should understand about Ukraine is the huge desire to become a better nation. Huge desire, huge acknowledgement of our sins, of, of, of how, how, how much needs to be done here. You know, people speak about Ukrainians as proud people. In a way, we are. But in a way, we aren't. Our favorite uh, topic of conversation uh, till the Russian invasion was how terrible our government is, A, and B, uh, how terrible our people are electing such a government. So uh, we, we just, we, if you know Ukrainian, you know, uh, if you know, if you have Ukrainian friends, you probably have experienced uh, all these, our uh, rather depressing conversations. So, but right now, this desire to be a better nation will be, will be multiplied by the feeling that we didn't break when the whole world thought we didn't stand a chance. It would be multiplied by the sense of victory. And this gives me hope that it will be a new Ukraine in the making. Plus, of course, the immense, endless suffering, this sacrifice will apply huge pressure on politicians not to, you know, to let down the people who went through this hell. Uh, people wouldn't put up with uh, many things uh, they put up uh, before. You speak as a realist. You come across as very authentic on Twitter. In this conversation, you're coming across as authentic. Going back to February 24th, you were just mentioning the sacrifice that the, the nation came together to, to move forward with. You also suggested that you didn't believe that Russia would go all the way through and uh, create a full-scale invasion the way they did. What were your feelings in the morning of February 24th when you realized they crossed the border and that they were attempting to um, occupy and enslave Ukraine? On the eve of the full-blown invasion, I think I gave an interview to BBC or some Western media, I don't remember exactly, and I was claiming that still I don't believe that Putin would make this mistake because this country cannot be conquered. These people can only be killed and destroyed, but not conquered. People don't want Russia here. They don't want to be Russian. And I was absolutely wrong, and I realized that at uh, 4 o'clock in the morning when my uh, cell phone uh, started ringing and those were my 
friends uh, from uh, Washington, uh, uh, Miroslava and Yuri, who were saying this moron has decided to do it. Your troops are moving from all directions towards Kiev. You have to wake up. You have to wake up your uh, you have to wake up your parents. Uh, something's happening. So that was the moment when I realized that Putin uh, was uh, stupid and sane enough to, to, to do this crazy thing. And of course, during the day, the pictures that I saw, oh my God, it was, it was something that uh, I saw only in um, movies about World War II, these, you know, young women bidding farewell to uh, their uh, fiancés going to war and these mothers crying and these uh, women uh, uh, carrying their babies towards the railway station. Uh, it was it was a very, very apocalyptic. I arrived one week after the full-scale invasion, coming in to, from Poland uh, on train, I saw the trains you were mentioning going in the other direction, full of young women, full of children, full of older men, older women. And the people who stayed behind, uh, who were engaged in, in these battles, uh, both as civilians and military, here we are 16 months later. The displaced people, the refugees, some who have started to come back, soldiers who have been fighting, family members who have been supporting those soldiers. No one has lost their humanity. No one has lost their uh, shining soul of what made Ukraine so such a this, this flame of, of hope in the first days of uh, after the full-scale invasion. On the other side, we see a darkness that we discussed earlier. This is something that can be uh, akin to uh, a loss of humanity. So while Ukrainians have held on to theirs, the other side have, uh, some would say, truly lost it. What has accounted for the Ukrainian people, wherever they are in society? Because one thing I've learned is it doesn't matter if you're inside Ukraine or not. If you're Ukrainian, you are part of the resistance no matter where you are around the world. What has allowed the Ukrainian people as a whole to remain so human? with all the best qualities of humanity, even during almost nine years of war, as well as 16 months of the full-scale invasion. You're too kind, Sarah, thank you. Uh, of course, we, we got uh, bitter too, and uh, we, uh, there was a couple of weeks ago, this incident with a Russian tourist who uh, died, who was attacked by a shark in Egypt, and, too many people uh, in social media rejoiced about the deaths, although they didn't know anything about this person, whether whatever what what his political views were, and so on and so forth. And and it starts the discussion in Ukraine. Aren't we, you know, turning too bitter? Uh, because we are not allowed to. to, to we are, we shouldn't allow that to happen. And on the one hand, on the other hand, we are definitely allowed to hate those who are trying to kill us. And so this is this is the hate to, to which we are entitled. Uh, but, you know, probably every country and every nation thinks uh, there is something special about themselves. And, uh, and there is something special about Ukrainians. I don't know what exactly, but 
we played we played a, a serious and important role in the history of uh, post-Soviet space uh, for quite a while because it was it was uh, our uh, referendum that basically put final you know stop plug uh, into the history of uh, Soviet Union. It was our Orange Revolution that uh, basically uh, showed that uh, this democratic uh, idea, like grass through the asphalt, uh, grew and through through this uh, bad history of Ukraine and to all kinds of you know bad things that we were supposed to learn. But we invented freedom, like like Americans did in seventeen seventy six, you know, and uh, and then uh, the Euromaidan and. Uh, this uh, live free or die, which also became our uh, motto. Um, so, and, and, and which actually didn't allow freedom to die in this part of Europe. So there is some, I don't like to use, you know, this term like historic mission or whatever, but on the other hand, I'm a faithful person. I believe in God and maybe God has, has uh, some special role for this, these people. They are definitely special. Mr. Ambassador, speaking of God, I remember during, uh, well, for the listeners who, who don't remember or aren't familiar, uh, they were, we had what was known as two different Kharkiv counteroffensives. We had one that took place in, in May, and then the large counteroffensive, which liberated about uh, 85% of Kharkiv Oblast uh, and, uh, throughout September and into October. And during that time, we started to see crosses, white crosses, uh, pop up on the the vehicles belonging to members of the uh, ZSU uh, Armed Forces of Ukraine. And I felt that was apropos because this is a war of good versus evil. This is a war of right versus wrong. And so since we are on the side of good as as a whole, as a community, uh, the allies, the, the Ukrainians themselves uh, are entitled to invoke God in this case because the other side truly is evil. It truly comes from a place of uh, darkness. And very much like uh, many holy wars, this is something that could only be fought with, as you mentioned, uh, two outcomes. Uh, you could be killed, we could win, but there would be nothing in between. And knowing that victory is certain, for Ukraine, it's just a matter of time. Do you believe or are you concerned that vengeance is something that will be carried in the hearts of, of some of the, the Ukrainians after we have victory? Or will we be able to look forward towards rebuilding and, and the blessings that came with our victory? Well, the hate between Ukraine and Russia will be there for many, many years. Uh, I spoke to a friend of mine who studied uh, the uh, Serbian-Croatian uh, relationship uh, during the Balkan War, and he said, well, it feels like uh, this hate will be endless, uh, uh, but in reality, between Serbs and Croats, uh, it lasted 15, 16 years. After that, uh, the emotion started running not so high. I don't know. Quite frankly, right now, it feels like... Uh, I, as a Christian, I'm not allowed, I'm not supposed to say words like this, but uh, there will be no forgiveness. Uh, this feels like this. Maybe maybe it will change at, at some point in the future, but right now it feels like this. It cannot be 
forgiven. Uh, this, this, this is crimes, this invasion, this breach of trust, because uh, still, you know, after, after, after Crimea, after Donbass, after all the, all the bloodshed, after 14,000 uh, dead on both sides in Donbass, uh, around 50% of Ukrainians still saw Russia as a brotherly country uh, before the full-blown invasion. And then these so-called brothers did what they did, what they did in Bucha, what they did in Erpin, what they did in Kharkiv. It just, you know, uh, the wounds will be very deep and very, very long healing. Without stepping into your territory too much, sir, with uh, diplomacy, one of the main points that I believe uh, President Zelensky attempts to make the world understand is that it's not just the 1991 borders, but it's his entire 10-point peace formula, because that is a cumulative way of, of trying to make Ukraine whole again, which includes also finding justice. That's one of the points, finding justice for everything that the Russian war criminals and terrorists have done to the people. And it also includes bringing back all those uh, who've been filtrated, all those children who have been taken. And it's a, it's a comprehensive peace formula. It's why it's the only peace formula that we can look at. Yet we have different nations for different reasons attempting to talk about peace. Is it something that could, could this victory of ours, this victory which is assured, as I always say, Ukraine has already won, that could it come about from a diplomatic solution or is it solely something that's going to have to happen on the battlefield? First of all, it's okay to speak about peace. So we, we Ukrainians speak about peace too. Or uh, the problem is that uh, these peace movements uh, that uh, engulfed uh, some of the European capitals uh, in the last uh, couple of months, or at least they were Russians were trying to build it up. It's not a movement for peace. It was. It is a movement for occupation of Ukraine. It was. It's. A, it is a movement for disarmament. Disarmament of Ukraine. And in the end, it's not about uh, people stopping. Uh, they. They claim the most important thing is that well, for people to stop dying. What they are preoccupied with is basically Russians. So for Russians to stop dying, Ukrainians will keep dying if it's an occupation. And all these torture dunge, dungeons and all these, you know. We saw uh, everything uh, when we liberated uh, these territories, how they, uh, the occupiers deal with Ukrainians. For diplomacy to work, uh, it takes uh, at least some deal of uh, goodwill on both sides. And I don't see any goodwill on Russia's side. I see the will to capture what they are already controlling, I see the will uh, to get away with all the crimes. It's not goodwill. It's just, it just uh, maybe even fear, uh, because deep inside they know that they lost this war, and that it's for them uh, to minimize the damage, uh, including for them personally, and maybe primarily for each and for each one of them personally. And that's the difference between quote unquote diplomacy and real diplomacy. And what 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 these uh, people are often suggesting are. Uh, quote, um, is quote-unquote diplomacy. We're going to wrap this up in a few minutes. Your time has been incredibly insightful. I want to focus on an area that we began with. You are the ambassador for strategic communications for Ukraine. 
uh, you are very active on social media. What can supporters of Ukraine on social media, what can they do in order to best push back against Russian disinformation and in, to also be able to find the best way to continue to elevate support for Ukraine around the world? Do you have any suggestions directly for these people? My message for them would be very simple. Truth is not always in the middle. And you probably know that already. But many people still don't. Many people still think that uh, I should listen to uh, a Russian ambassador for strategic communications and Ukrainian ambassador for and maybe the truth will be somewhere in the middle. In Ukraine's case, it's not. In Ukraine's case, what we have been claiming about uh, this Malaysian plane from the very beginning, in the end, it turns out a bit true. What we have been claiming about this war and about Russia's uh, plans, in the end, it turned out to be truth. Uh, sometimes, uh, truth is not about location, but about substance. So please focus on substance and not just uh, on this notion that uh, there is uh, something about uh, both sides uh, and both sides are guilty and so on and so forth. That, that would be my main message. Truth is not always in the middle. I am joined by Mr. Oleksandr Shervav, Ambassador for Strategic Communications for Ukraine and author of the book, Ukraine vs. Darkness, Undiplomatic Thoughts. Mr. Ambassador, it is a pleasure to have had you on the show as the first guest with Sarah Ashton at the Zero Line. And I look forward to continuing to learn from you, to watch you on social media. For those who are on Twitter, you can follow uh, the ambassador at his handle, which is Olex, O-L-E-X, underscore, Sherba, S-C-H-E-R-B-A. And it is worth the follow, not just for things regarding the war, but just in general. Uh, the ambassador is authentic as it gets and a clear reason why Ukraine has managed to have its voice heard around the world. Thank you very much again, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for helping to fight our fight. It's just, it's incredible uh, that people like you, uh, who are not Ukrainian, come to Ukraine in such a difficult, horrible time and share our pain. We are endlessly thankful to you. Slava Ukraini. Yerlam Slava. Thank you for listening to The Zero Line, a podcast brought to you by Resolute Square. Resolute Square's mission is to inform, lead, and connect. And the Zero Line is one of the tools that followers of Resolute Square can use to fight back against tyranny while championing democracy. Please like and subscribe to the Zero Line wherever you podcast and follow us on Twitter at Resolute Square or visit ResoluteSquare.com. Thanks once more for hanging out at the Zero Line.